Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like-minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human-centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. One of the things we're really looking at in our platform, both in the technology and the design side, is how do we help people really understand all of these different behaviors as part of Mm -hmm. a connected ecosystem and start to coordinate the things that they're doing so they don't feel like they're just going one by one by one. On the AI side, that means cultivating the algorithm to be able to make decisions about more things than just the content of the messages. So also things like what channel do we message somebody through? Is it better to message Amy on her cell phone about her flu shot and then an email about her mammogram? Hello and welcome to This Is Hate CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a designer, educator and I'm the host of This Is Hate CD based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. Now I caught up recently with great friend of the podcast, Amy Butcher. Amy is author of Engaged on Rosenfeld Media, a book definitely worth checking out. And we chat about her role as CBO, um, which is the Chief Behavioural Officer at Lirio. Now, on Lirio's website, they state, our purpose is to combine the power of behavioural science with artificial intelligence to drive positive behaviour change for the betterment of all people. Now, we chat about just how this works within the delicate realms of healthcare, and it makes for a fantastic conversation with Amy. Amy's super cool. But before we jump in, if you like what we're doing here, um, please help us out by doing one of two things. You can do both if you want. It makes me super happy if you do both. Number one is leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It only takes a couple of minutes and it really, really helps with the findability of the podcast. Those algorithms really love your words and your five-star ranking as well, ideally. And second thing is go on better and become a patron. It really helps the podcast stay alive. You get an ad-free stream of the podcast for as little as €1.66 per month. That's like half a cup of coffee in Dublin. And you also get a shout out as thanks as well on future podcasts. There are other plans there where you can get exclusive items too, such as an embroidered hoodie and also a t-shirt and notebook and so forth. And literally all the money goes directly to editing, hosting and maintaining our website, which is now a repository for human-centered design goodness. We're probably hitting nearly 230 episodes up there at the moment and all proceeds go towards making sure that we can keep the lights on at This Is 8 CD. Anyway, let's jump straight into this episode. Amy Butcher, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm not so bad. We've just had a bit of a, a catch up. Can't believe it's been, has it been three, two and a half years, pretty much? Yeah, a few years. A couple of years, a couple of years. Just, we were talking, you know, it was just before the pandemic happened, before it all went a bit weird. Um, That's the pandemic, not me or you. But um, <laughs> you've been super busy. We've been messaging each other sort of like ships in the night on different platforms over the last couple of years. Um, you moved on, you're in a new role, um, but maybe you tell us a little bit more about um, where you're at now and what you're doing. Yeah, happy to. So last time we talked, I was at NADPOW, where I was the vice president for behavior change design. 
Mm-hmm. Um, about a year and a half ago, I moved to a startup called Lirio, which um, we have an artificial intelligence platform that we use to send behavioral science-based messaging to people about their healthcare. So mm-hmm. if they're um, you know, due for an immunization or a cancer screening or a wellness visit, we're able to message them about that, but in a way that really connects with whatever might be stopping them from taking action. And the AI helps to personalize that outreach over time. So I'm, I'm the chief behavioral officer there. I lead our behavior science team, which includes behavioral design, you know, kind of my, my bread and butter, mm-hmm. my background, yeah. and also behavioral research, which is really focused on proving out the effectiveness of our products and kind of feeding that research back into the design process. Nice. And um, one of the very cool things, I mean, you probably know I'm not an expert in AI by any means. So there is an artificial intelligence team as well. We have a chief AI scientist. And that that for me was a huge nice. reason to join Lirio, to be able to work alongside a, another science team and really learn from them and kind of absorb as much knowledge as I could. Although I will say the main thing I've learned is that I know nothing. I can imagine it's it's probably safer to say that in a business like Lirio, I don't know than it is in a traditional design business where you almost feel like you have to have the answers to everything. Um, but maybe take a little bit of a back step. We're not going to go into the road or down the road, should I say, of what behavioral design is. We kind of covered that off in the last episode. For anyone who's listening to this, we want to know a little bit more about Amy. Go back and check it out. It's in March 2020 on the podcast or just scroll through iTunes. It'll be there. Amy, you also wrote Engaged the book um, on Rosenfeld Media, and that was the last time we caught up. How did the book do over the last uh, two and a half years? I know you've been busy speaking about it. Yeah, I, I mean, very non-traditional kind of book promotion process because it came out in March 3rd, 2020. Exactly. And as we know, the world shut down about a week later. So I, I didn't have what I think of as the typical experience where you might go visit you know, companies Big and program. teams and do workshops and really talk in that sort of in-person format. But I did do a lot of um, podcast interviews and virtual presentations. One of the things that actually was um, an advantage of having to do everything remote is I feel like I was able to speak much more to people outside of the U.S. Because yeah. obviously traveling to another country is is time consuming, but it's not really a big deal to um, you know hop on a Zoom, even if it's at a strange hour of the day. So um, I feel like internationally speaking, I probably was able to talk to more people and and kind of spread the word about the book more than I would have been able otherwise. I don't know like what to benchmark it against to say like how it did, but I will say one of the things that I really loved about it is like even this week, I got a message on LinkedIn from somebody who I don't know personally who had come across a copy of the book and was looking through it and, you know, Mm -hmm. had some very nice feedback to share. And so that to me is, is sort of like the wow moment, like, oh my gosh, there's real people out there who are reading this and thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good points in that. Um, the fact that you you probably didn't have to travel, but it was a different experience. And how you did, I mean, like that podcast alone generated an awful lot of inquiries on my end, um, a lot of stimulus for great conversations around what behavioral design was. And it really educated me as well, because I think at the start of that conversation, I was like, hey, I'm a little bit suspicious of behavioral design and design coming together because I was coming from the perspective of nudges. If you remember the whole kind of nudge craze, like we're just going to behave, we'll nudge them into our channel and then manipulate them. But I guess I'm I'm interested to learn more about Lirio. Um and it sounds like it's it's obviously it's a huge um technology focused business leaning on AI. 
How are they using behavioral design and design generally to inform the creation of the algorithms? Yeah. And let me start by saying our product is called Precision Nudging, <laughs> um, but we do use yeah. a much broader toolkit than just nudges. I, you and I, I think, share some skepticism towards um, you know nudges as the, the whole package. And even um, when I was interviewing at Leary, I was like, tell me there's more than just nudges. And I, I was satisfied that, yes, it's a, it's a more sophisticated um, toolkit. Yeah. You know, nudges have their place, but it's not every place. So mm-hmm. um, my behavioral design team, I think of them as a the tip of the spear. Once we close a contract with a client, the behavioral design team is the first team internally who's activated. And so we do a little bit of consulting. We call it our behavioral discovery and design process. If we're building a new product, like if, if we have a client who comes in and says, hey, I want to do precision nudging for um, lung cancer screening, that's something we don't do today. We would mm-hmm. want to do some work within their organization to really understand the patient experience of lung cancer screening. You know, what are the behaviors that somebody needs to engage in to get to that you know, other side where the screening is done? And it's usually going to be something like scheduling and attending that appointment. But sometimes there's mm-hmm. more to it. Like we have a program for colonoscopy. And so we really mapped out all of the different behaviors around preparing for that colonoscopy. Um, In most Mm -hmm. states in the United States, if you're going to have anesthesia, you need to have another person drive you to and from the appointment. They don't let you get behind the car. So, you know, making sure that all of those sorts of supportive behaviors are also covered. Um, And then we're, that team is also actually building the intervention. So I have people who are, Mm -hmm. I call behavioral designers, that's their job title, and they have behavior science training. So they're doing all of this action path mapping, you know, documenting what behaviors we're trying to change and what are the uh, determinants of that behavior, the things that make it harder or easier. So that gets into all the stuff Mm -hmm. we talked about before. But then they're actually working closely with what we call our behavioral creatives, who are writers and visual designers, to translate everything that comes out in that research into content and images. So we're basically taking one behavior change technique per message um, and writing content and creating a, a new image, a bespoke image, to bring that to life. And then that becomes the message that we'll send to people through um, either email or text message or whatever other channel our customer organizations want to use. And it's kind of an interesting nuance to the work. I haven't previously worked so closely with creative teams to translate the behavior science into content, but um, it's really fun. I was going to ask more around the patient journey, say for argument's sake, the colonoscopy journey. I'm going to take the the, the, the least popular one that most people want to talk about. Um, but is it an omnichannel experience? Are you able to track the behavioral side omnichannel or is it primarily just digital? So anything that happens on a smartphone or email? Yeah, so right, Lirio's precision nudging right now is digital only. However, we one of the reasons we do that discovery process is to support the um, sort of live analog experience because mm-hmm. one of the ways that we think about it is we can use the messaging to get people to decide to take action, you know, get them started on that behavior. But then they're going to go out and interface with the health system. You know, they're going to call and try to schedule the appointment and have to go through, you know, buying their laxatives and taking them and all that. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that although a lot of that experience is outside of our control, we can advise our clients on how to improve it using behavioral science. So a lot of the work that we do in our discovery is things like we'll review the patient education materials and make suggestions for ways to make them easier to understand or align them better with the way people behave. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of like call scripts, call center script reviews. So if they have a phone representative who's doing reach out, sometimes there's tweaks you can make to those scripts that make it more likely that someone will respond and understand what you're asking of them. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's how we're trying to influence the kind of offline part. But our, our product itself is digitally focused. 
Okay. And is Lirio the provider of the service or do they sell to um, third parties, so to speak, like a health provider, like an insurance company? Well, what is their, how are they making money? Yeah, so we, we primarily sell to health systems right now, although we are talking to insurance providers and um, other types of healthcare organizations. Mm-hmm. So we white label our communications. They appear to come from the health system. And for some of our clients, they, they actually are sent out through whatever mechanism they're already using. So like, for example, we've integrated with Salesforce Marketing Cloud for some of our clients. We can also send messages directly, but we do do that white labeling. So it appears to come from the health system, the place where the patient receives care. And the way that we make money, um, most often we're actually doing value-based contracts or risk-based contracts where we're being paid for the outcomes that we produce. So we work with our clients to figure out, you know, what is the value of this appointment or behavior? Like, what do you recognize in terms of revenue from a mammogram? Um, And then we take a percentage of that for the people that we're able to get to take action. And the nice thing about it or the cool thing about it is that we're usually working with populations who are really disengaged, like with our... um, kind of marquee implementation of our mammogram program. These are women who are at least two years past their last mammogram. And you're supposed to have that once a year. So these are women at least one year overdue. And you would expect them to be a little bit less responsive to outreach than someone who stays on top of their healthcare all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, for us to kind of say, well, we'll take a piece of the revenue from from these folks. These are probably patients the health system wouldn't have seen otherwise. Right. Okay. So there's a huge, huge opportunity there for kind of bringing those people back into the system. And the the bit I'm kind of like a bit confused about is how can you how can you monetize that? How can you quantify that in order to take a take a cut? Like is that well, Jerry? I have just published a paper that I don't know if you were trying to toss me a <laughs> no, 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 actually, <laughs> you, you've um, written a paper. Yeah, um, it's in JMIR formative research. So, um, you know, peer review journal. Um, I wrote it with my colleague, Brenton Powers, who um, actually created this economic model in partnership with our health system, one of our health system clients. So it's around our diabetes program, which um, really Mm -hmm. focuses on getting people with either type one or type two diabetes to see their primary care provider on a regular basis. And so um, the paper lays out the formula. It relies a lot on publicly available data. So um, our hope was that it's something that other companies can replicate for for their own use for pricing interventions. But um, we basically looked at what will the insurance companies reimburse the health system for these visits? And that reimbursement rate is dependent on a few things. So with diabetes, there's very often comorbid conditions or other behavioral issues we essentially used a percentage from national data to calculate. So like if you get a patient with diabetes come in the door, yeah. um, there's a 60% chance you get to talk to them about tobacco cessation and that's something you get to bill for. So essentially creating right. that, um, you know, that, that table of what would you be able to bill for for one of these appointments? And then also looking at the insurance mix that is in that health system. So just as a rule of thumb, your commercial health insurance plans are going to pay you the most. And then your government health insurance plans are going to pay you the least. So if you know what percentage of your patients belong to which buckets, you can kind of estimate, you know, if we got 5,000 people to take action, like what, what kind of money would we make? So okay. we actually ran the economics on what we thought the health system would be able to recoup from these visits. And then for each one that they book, we get a percentage of that. Right. What does the future of this, um, not just the business, but this type of work, what does it look like? And the second part of the question is, what are the risks associated with it? 
Yeah. So in terms of this type of work, and I'm, I'm mm. interpreting this as sort of like the, the blended behavior science AI yeah. approach to influencing patient behavior. Um, we are trying to look, I guess, omni-channel is maybe not the right word, but really orchestrating more of a patient journey. So in our early days, we very much focused on um, kind of isolated healthcare behaviors. You know, let's, let's get your mammogram, let's get your colonoscopy. But in reality, we know that most people are going to the doctor multiple times a year for all of these things. Um, you know, even things like flu shot, which in the U.S., most people will just pop by a pharmacy, not necessarily going to see their doctor for that. It's another health behavior to, to keep track of. And so one of the things we're really looking at in our platform, both in the technology and kind of the, the design side, is how do we help people really understand all of these different behaviors as part of mm -hmm. a connected ecosystem and start to coordinate the things that they're doing so they don't feel like they're just... Um, you know, going one by one by one. On the AI side, that means allowing, you know, not even allowing, cultivating the algorithm to be able to make decisions about more things than just the content of the messages. So also things like what channel do we message somebody through? Is it better to message Amy on her cell phone about her flu shot and then an email about her mammogram? Um, and the agent is able, and when I say agent, I mean like the, the model, the algorithm, it's able yeah. to figure out as it has more interactions with somebody, if they may be responsive on a certain channel for certain types of messages than others. Um, even things like time of day, day of week. Like really, say time of day would be a really huge driver. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say one of the really interesting things in collaborating with an AI team, I'm like, oh yeah, time of day, right? We send it day, not at night, but it's actually a very detailed transformation of the data because to an artificial intelligence, like. 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. are very different times, but to a human being who's going to be asleep, that's basically the same time. And so there's sort of some decisions that you have to make about how that data gets consumed by the algorithm that I yeah. found really interesting to work through. And it's also different time zones as well, presumably, because in the U.S. you've got multiple different time zones. Yeah, we do. Happening congruently. So if they're like yourself, probably you know passing between time zones in, in the States, it's location specific. Is that right? You know, it's funny that you asked that. I actually am not sure. I think so to date, our health and actually in general, when you work with a health system, they tend to be regionally based. So they mm -hmm. might only have a presence within one state or one region. And for mm -hmm. the most part, they're not crossing time zones. There's a couple states in the U.S. where you have different time zones in the same state. So Tennessee, where we're based, is one of them. Um, and in that case, you're going to have that one hour difference. I'm not sure how we deal with, with time zones though, because I don't know that we've ever really had to do it in a dramatic way where we have like a client with East coast and West coast people where there's a three hour difference. Mm. So how does it work in terms of being able to de determine location and the time of day? Is that, I guess I'm, I'm coming from the, the service design side of things where there's a potential snoopiness, um, in terms of GDPR I'm based in Ireland. Um, GDPR is a huge thing in Ireland and Europe. Um, how do they get that information? Is it from the smartphone? No, actually it's not. And I will say too, um, we pay a lot of attention to GDPR and data privacy globally. Our expectation is that the US will start becoming more like the EU in terms of um, data privacy laws. And so yeah. we're really, we as much as possible, trying to um, you know generate our own data as opposed to mm -hmm. purchasing other data. Because our expectation is that will not long-term be available. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but so we we receive data from our health system clients about their patient population. They they basically send a file to start um, of the people they believe are eligible for whatever health behaviors we're messaging around. Mm. We verify that. So we work with our clients to really establish eligibility criteria. I mentioned diabetes. You know, we would look at whether someone has an existing diagnosis of type one or type two. We have exclusions. We would want to know their last A1C value because that changes um, the clinical guidelines around how often they should see their doctor. But that mm-hmm. file also contains um, contact information, which they have explicitly permitted the health system to communicate with them on. So, you know, we're, we're if we email you, it's because you've given the health system permission to email you about okay. healthcare behaviors. And then it typically will also include some of that location information you mentioned. And then we have a um, one of our AI scientists specializes in geospatial transformation work. I don't understand in detail what he does, but he's really able to take basic address data and start to understand things like social determinants of health. Is this someone who's living in an area that's really underserved by healthcare organizations and, you know, potentially has access issues, that kind of thing. So um, we're, for the most part, getting that data from our clients and then we're able Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, work work with what we get there. I remember when I was based in Australia, um, the one of the services that I was working on looked at the parentification of children and the information being shared out, critical information about health services being shared out uh, to non-English speaking families. So it could be a second or third language. And Australia and Sydney in particular is very diverse. There's hundreds of languages, maybe even even a thousand, I think it's about 900 and something in, in the area of Sydney. What's Lirio's take on how they can actually handle that in this sort of the multi-language facet of delivery? Because in America, it's pretty much the same. Um, how, how and what work are you doing in that space? To be more yeah, and another timely question, and I know you didn't know this, so we're on the same This was actually penned in as a, as a personal catch-up, and I said to Amy, come on, let's do a podcast. Yeah. So, um, no, we... And the other thing too, you know, as part of my role is sort of establishing what are the pillars that we want to live into Mm -hmm. with our research and our proof points. And one of the ones that um, we have on there is health equity, Mm -hmm. kind of similar to to MadPow, actually. Lirio has attracted employees who are really mission driven. You know, they want to work in healthcare. They want to help people be healthier and kind of like take control of their their own um, lives in this particular way. And so um, we are very interested in making sure that we're offering our programs in the languages that the patient populations speak. We are only live in English today. We have in the past done some work in other languages, but the pandemic, we, I mean, we're designed to get people to take part in in-person care. So like you can imagine what the pandemic did to yeah. But we had this lovely opportunity to sort of pause and revisit our programs and, and get everything into um, good shape before we relaunched and in-person care resumed. I am mm-hmm. right now in the process of working on not translating, but transcreating our content into um, Spanish and working wow. through getting all that on our platforms. We have a customer who's going to be launching in Spanish next year, early next year that we're excited about. Um, the transcreation process is what we're pursuing because they don't do like a word for word literal translation. You know, this is fluent speakers who read the English content and then create um, Spanish mm-hmm. content that is means the same thing, but may not word for word be the same. And yeah. that's really important because our content is all built with behavioral science. And so there's a lot of nuance around how we bring something mm-hmm. to life. Like if we're writing a message that's supposed to demonstrate social proof, we would want to ensure that whatever... Um, comes out in the other language is mm-hmm. also doing the same thing 
So, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're actively working on that. We, we're also talking to clients like in places like Florida, California, Texas, where they have populations that speak Spanish, but they're coming from many different parts of Latin America. And so there's different okay. dialects to consider as Absolutely. well. And that's another reason we chose to do transcreation because we can work with people who can um, kind of deal with those, those gradations. What about, and again, I feel like I'm putting you on the hot spot here, like an interview um, for a job almost. And talk to me about your experience with this. But in terms of um, the literacy levels that the, the messaging gets delivered at, um, sure, uh, America is similar to the rest of the world in terms of um, my experience anyway as a practitioner. Literacy levels vary you know, dramatically between people. Is there, is there an algorithmic kind of understanding of based on the responses and the language that are coming back to them that they can derive, maybe they need to alter their messages? We don't think about it that way. We just write all of our messages at a relatively low grade level. So we aim for between five or something. Yeah, like between four and eight. Um, okay, the yeah. lower the better. We, as we write our program content, we pay for a readability assessment tool that we run it all through. Um, and you know, we do the things like the words like colonoscopy, right? Obviously, that's a, a long word Good that's word. going to raise the grade level. So you know, we can replace that with a one syllable word for purposes of of seeing that everything else um, is at the right grade level. But we just sort of take this global approach here where if we write it at an easy to understand grade level, the folks who are more sophisticated will understand it, and so will the people who have um, more literacy mm-hmm. struggles. so um we we don't use the algorithm for that, okay. So imagine I'm going to put you you've got the good hat on okay so you're you're using this for purpose how can this be used for um for against shall we say against purpose yeah um this is something we talk about a lot and mm-hmm. i would say one of the bright lines that we so far um feel pretty strongly about is we would never want to use the system to determine who is eligible for care so we're not making a diagnosis or a recommendation yeah, yeah. We're relying on clinical guidelines. We're relying on the um, science, science and medical folks at our client organizations to say, you know, these are the criteria that make somebody available. We would not want the AI to make those decisions. There's just too many stories yeah. about that going awry. You know, the AI is not a doctor. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the other place where I personally feel a little squeamish, and I, I don't know if Lyria would ever get into this just because of our business model and where we're positioned, mm-hmm. but you could certainly use the technology this way is for more like consumer type purposes. Like if you wanted to sell a product, you yeah. could absolutely use this type of system to, um, you know, make sure that everybody's getting the most compelling possible message about that product. But that's not really something, I mean, and I, I don't think that that would be an ethical disaster by any means, but I don't think it's something that particularly interests us either. It doesn't feel um, aligned with our mission. Yeah. It's kind of what you know, businesses like Critio, I don't know if you know Critio, they're a, a, an ad reserving platform. They alternate the messaging on display ads on websites across the internet and they follow you. So if mm. you search for a dehumidifier for argument's sake um, one night and then you go on to another website two days later, they're like, hey, this dehumidifier is still here and they're like, kind of like flashing at you. That's kind of what happens anyway online. It's just kind of a, a step forward. Yeah, kind of I'm being forward. followed right now, by the way, for an ad for a really fabulous pair of boots that I bought. And I'm kind oh, of like, guys, I bought them. them. I did it. <laughs> Critio, I remember that that was one of my friends used to work for Critio. And um, I remember saying that. I said, well, I've actually already bought them, but I bought them incognito and they're still serving me the ad. And he's like, yeah, about that. Can't figure that one out yeah. yet, you know, unless we read your inbox. <laughs> so... 
it's kind of hard to close the loop off. Where I think the type of AI we use might improve over that is we do personalize based on behavioral responses. So of course, especially if we send the message, we know if people, well, with email, at least we know if people are opening it. If there's a clickable call to action, we know if they're doing that. And there isn't always because for making medical appointments, a lot of places Mm -hmm. want you to pick up the phone and call. So there may not be a clickable call to action in our messages. But then we're also getting data back. Like, did they make the appointment? Did they show up for the appointment? And based on that binary yes or no, the AI is like, okay, let me let me try harder or, you know, this sort of thing worked and mm-hmm. I, I can send this sort of thing again, perhaps. If you think about something like ads, um, I'm sure that you could use this type of algorithm to be like, mm-hmm. all right, if you didn't click on it this time, let's try something else and, you know, get, get mm-hmm. to the point where I'm much more reliably clicking. I mean, on the Critio thing where they weren't able to close the loop off, You've kind of answered the question there, like another set of data arrives into the conversation and tells the al- algorithm, okay, they've they've made their appointment. Um, if you don't get that data in a timely enough manner, what happens? Do the, does the messaging still continue? Is there a way yeah. from- Yep, that's the problem. If we don't get the data back, because the way that it works basically is we will stop messaging you if you take action or if you unsubscribe. Okay. Um, and we, we do, we don't message you relentlessly. We actually build very long pauses into our message. We call it our pulse communication pattern where we'll message mm-hmm. you regularly for four or five weeks. Then okay. we'll take a break of eight or nine weeks and resume. And cause we don't want to relentlessly hound mm-hmm. you. You know, people may have reasons for not taking action that we want yeah. to be respectful of. Uh, but that is absolutely a drawback and we don't have real time data integration so far. It hasn't really been necessary there's there but there's a handful of people who are they do make the appointment and then they get that next message and um it's a problem that we definitely like to solve okay and one of the questions is the sincerity and and trust behind the system like um do they disclose the fact that it's an algorithm talking to them or do they have a picture of amy up there a little circle (laughs) of amy kind of going chief behavioral scientist or designer how does that work we don't disclose where, so like I said, we white label the messages. So they will have our, our client, you know, logos and um, sender informations and such. Lirio is invisible to the patient. Um, okay. We also work with the health system. Like, for example, a lot of health systems in the U.S. will have multiple locations that have different branding. So yeah. we work with them to make sure that every patient is seeing the branding that corresponds to where they personally go for care. So we're trying to leverage that, um, you know, familiar brand. And again, mm-hmm. we're doing it all, like we're sending it on behalf of the health system. So I, I don't feel like it's any more, um, I don't know, devious than like if a health system used Twilio or Salesforce and didn't disclose that that platform was in place. Okay. And then the content of the message, you might not realize that it's not a typical marketing message if you're just reading one of those messages in isolation. Like we, we work with our clients to make sure that we are echoing their brand voice and the tone of the communications that patients are seeing elsewhere in that organization. We really do want it to feel like it's coming from, from the person who's providing your care. Because the, the brand language, if you want for, I can't think of another phrase of saying it, that changes between brands obviously so is that something that you can you can take into consideration yeah yeah and i, I will say West talking to you versus you know um obama there's two different tones of voice yeah i mean one nice thing is health systems i mean they'll hate me saying this there isn't that much variation i mean there's certain things that any sort of healthcare organization is going to want to communicate you know caring and respect and 
Yeah, sure. Um, a really a thing we see really frequently with organizations is that their um, voice and tone has been developed to convey like we're part of the same community, like that sort of uh, yeah. social aspect. Because a lot of, you know, it's like they're they're locally located. They want you to know like we're part of the same community as you. So um, we we do pay attention to those things, but I will say um, for the most part, there's a lot of commonality too. So it's not like we're creating completely different looking messages for two health systems most of the time. Yeah, fair enough. Amy, I know we're we're coming towards the end of of our episode. They always fly when I speak to you. Before before we jump off, what did you study in university? Because I know there's people there in the background that are like, this sounds like an incredible job. Okay, like where you're working in a really fast paced space where it's probably changing on a day to day basis. But what's your background in terms of what did you study to get to where you are now? Yeah, I, I feel like my background's really boring. <laughs> I studied psychology. I studied psychology in okay. undergrad and then went on and got a PhD in psychology as well. Um, and I love talking about my job path because I feel like I really stumbled into my current position. Um, mm-hmm. I, I finished my PhD in 2006 and behavioral design wasn't in a formal okay. sense of thing yet. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. Like there were no yeah. jobs called that. So kind of bumbled into different um, jobs. Like my first job was in a healthcare research or it was a healthcare agency, like a marketing agency, but I was on a research mm-hmm. team and I, I didn't like that space, but I'm like, Ooh, healthcare. Like there's a lot to do here for someone yeah. who knows behavior science. And then my next job was with a startup um, doing digital health coaching. So actually very similar to what Lirio's doing. Only Lirio is, you know, 15 years more sophisticated with a world-class AI team. So uh, yeah, I do yeah. feel like I got a second bite at the apple there, but getting into that, that first tech organization for me was like, oh, not only should I work in healthcare, I should work in technology because mm-hmm. there's really this role where I can unite my psychology background with some of these, you know, UX roles, uh, product roles. And so that, that for me was kind of where my career path really began. All right. That's awesome. Amy, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a link to uh, Engaged, the book, in the show notes as well. But if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, you know, I normally say Twitter. We will see if that's around. Before we say, are you on Mastodon yet? I did move over to Mastodon, but I haven't figured out quite how to use it. So I put... (laughs) You're the fourth person in a week to say, I'm on it. I don't know how to use it yet. So I'm like, hmm. Every time someone I like on Twitter posts their Mastodon username, I like click on it and make sure I'm following them there too. So yeah. that's that's the extent to which I've I've really used it so far. I am on Twitter. I'm not planning to shut down my account, but who knows if the platform will exist. I'm Amy B PhD, and I have um, a link to my Mastodon in there. I think it's also Amy B PhD. I just don't remember what server I'm on. Okay. And then um, LinkedIn and Lirio.com. Okay, very good. I'll, I'll put a link to as many of those as I can possibly find. And who knows, by the time this goes out, maybe they've all collapsed and been bought over by a megalomaniac. <laughs> Amy, it's as always, it's brilliant to have you back on the podcast. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't take us two and a half years the next time. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll make sure it doesn't. And there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.